any of us who've been in it for long enough, our entire career has been littered with jobs that we didn't get, projects that we thought were going to go for sure, dozens of unproduced scripts littering the floor. All of us are running into both major and minor failures in Hollywood every single day. For every success, there is months, sometimes even years, of painful failure. This is one of the only businesses I can think of where failure is the default. That's the norm. You have to be able to persevere. Like everything in our business, your hands get callous and it all bounces off you. Uh, you know, that process takes years. That doesn't happen overnight. I was being told by my manager, it's yours to lose. And I promptly lost it. And I remember thinking like, well, that's it for me. I blew my one big shot. What I've realized from that moment is it's never one big shot. There will be other shots. Dreaming into the Hollywood Abyss is brought to you by Scriptation, the Emmy Award. It sounds awful when you say it. Let, Let somebody with a more charming accent do this bit. Screaming into the Hollywood Abyss is brought to you by Scriptation, the Emmy Award-winning app for anyone that reads scripts, makes notes, organise them into layers, and save hours of time by automatically transferring those notes into new script revisions. Sitha listeners can get a free month of Scriptation by going to scriptation.com backslash Sitha. Now that's how you do it, Noah. Welcome back to Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss, a podcast about rejection, failure and adversity in the entertainment industry. I am, as ever, your non-entertainment co-host, Dan Rutstein. And this week, anyways, I am still your industry co-host, Noah Epsilon. On today's Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss, we're excited to have on TV writer, showrunner, show creator, and sometimes actor Chris Sheridan. Chris has wrote on such shows as Living Single, Titus, Yestier, and lots and lots of Family Guy before creating and showrunning Resident Alien. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So it's great to have you on. Um, we're going to start. So when we were doing the uh, the pre, pre-game, whatever you call it, um, you literally walked away from your screen to find some rejection letters. So um, I guess I have two questions. So number one, the fact that you found them so easily uh, suggests that there's probably a reason that you've you've kept them. Um, so let's talk about that before we actually talk about what's in in the letters themselves. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think, any, first of all, rejection letters don't really exist anymore because if you don't, if you try to get a job or something, you don't get it. You just don't hear back, basically. So, But it used to be a time where you would, and this dates me to the early 90s when I moved out to L.A. Yeah, you reach out to someone to try to get a job, and you will get a uh, a very kind letter back saying we're not interested. So even then, I thought that those would be helpful in in uh, reminding me that there's, there's, there's no easy path to getting to where I want to get. So I've had these for over, you know, I guess 30 years now. So do you pull them out every so often when you're having a good day or a bad day and reread them or you just just keep them? You know, I just keep them. I found them about five years ago, uh, maybe about 10 years ago. They were in a box and I put them in my office and I just have them. I'll look at them every now and then, but they don't do much for me. Uh, Although (laughs) although I do have one from uh, I'm currently employed by uh, Universal from NBC Universal. And I, I, I did, for the first time, looking at them again last week, realize that one of them is from MCA Universal, saying, uh, thank you for your recent inqu- inquiry into employment opportunities with MCA Universal. 
At the present time, we do not have a position available in which we could effectively utilize your qualifications. We have, however, placed your resume in our files. Should a suitable position become available, we'll be in contact with you. Never, ever heard from them again. So uh, uh, they did wish me uh, continued success in my career endeavors, though. So that was universal. I never heard back from them for, from an opening in 30 years, but I did. I was able to sell a show to them five years ago. So I guess it all worked out. Well, how do you know they didn't keep you on file? And then when you went to pitch the show, they're like, oh, we've been waiting <laughs> oh, this for this guy. guy. <laughs> this guy who wanted to be a PA 30 years ago is sitting on the show. I feel like there's not a lot of overlap in in, in written communication from the 90s and uh, pitching in the 2015s. So, so I, I'm not going to make this whole episode about your rejection <laughs> letters, but Obviously, rejections are different now. They're either, you know, they're phone calls or they're emails. You yeah. don't print out the emails and keep them in the same box as your rejection letters, presumably. No, and a lot of times, but but like I said, a lot of times you don't get an email back. I mean, this was, you know, this was back when, I think now what happens is you send your resume and you never hear back. I was, when I first moved out, I was living on someone's couch in um, in Brentwood because that's where they lived. And I lived on the couch for three months when I first moved out there because I didn't know anybody. And uh, and I had zero money, so I couldn't afford a place. But there was a this thing that is only in science fiction movies now called a payphone. There was a payphone on the corner of Barrington and Sunset. And I used to go out every day and get my change and go out and just cold call the studios from that payphone on Barrington and Sunset asking for, you know, to be an NBC page, asking to work at um abc any job whatsoever just trying to get anything and it was you know this car's going by honking their horns and i didn't want them to know i'm at a payphone so i just would pretend that i was in my apartment with the window open but uh but yeah that was what it was you just i'm standing in the street for hours making phone calls um and then if i got lucky they would say you know send in your resume and then you'd send the resume in and then you know get your get your rejection letter back from roseanne saying we're not interested um not from her Personally, I'm sure, but from the from the show, so yeah. Wait, it, it's not quite the sort of Brad Pitt in a chicken costume story that may or may not be true about his early career, but it's obviously. I mean, some of it's the time because payphones, as you say, don't exist. But some of it is the fact that you were doing that. Now that you are a success, are there times where you've you're sitting on a set or you're sitting counting your money and you look back and think? Oh, I was making phone calls from a payphone on a street corner. I think about it every day. And I think about it not because like, oh, what was me? I had to do that. But thank God I had to do that. Going through that and all the bad stuff that happens to you when you're trying to make it and you don't have any power, and but people have power over you. And certainly back in the 90s, we're willing to use it. Uh, for me, anyways, it makes me appreciate a lot more everything that I might have now because it was it was a struggle to get it, you know, for everybody. And even though people don't have to stand at payphones now to get a job, they they do have to make phone calls. They do have to email and they do have to, you know, do the right things to be in the right place at the right time. And they've got to kind of work their ass off. So there, there's it's a lot of work and there's no guarantees it's going to it's going to happen for you. But, you know, the, I, the, the reason I got my actually got my first job is because I was able to get an interview. And in the interview um, uh, with a woman named Deb Oppenheimer. Um, who worked at Lorimar at the time for a show called Shaky Ground. The reason I 
she gave me that job as a PA is because I told, she said, well, how, what's your story? What, you know, how do you live here? I said, no, I live in New Hampshire. But when I told her that I, I basically just packed my stuff, I quit my bartending job in New Hampshire, packed my stuff in my car and drove cross country without knowing where I was going to stay or, you know, knowing anyone out here and end up sleeping on someone's couch. That's a plus to her. Cause that says to her, well, this guy's willing to do anything. And if he's willing to drive out here without a job, He's clearly a hard worker and is going to really bust his ass if we hire him. So that's how I got the job. It's not, it doesn't help you. I mean, it probably, and knowing that now, like it probably would have helped me to tell them I'm standing at a payphone on sunset, give me a job. I think anything that shows people that you're willing to work hard, uh, I think people would be surprised how few people that finally get their foot in the door and getting their foot kicked out of the door because they just aren't hard workers. I mean, judging judging by your career, you've had a long and 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 varied career, mostly you know in in the comedy world. Yeah. Uh, so success is coming. We know that you know by your credits. But can you talk a little bit about the early struggles? Because you kind of referenced it. I mean, you're willing to stand on a corner and cold call. Yeah. So talk about getting in, breaking in, and maybe some of the things that happened. Did you stay in? Did you get kicked back out? What was what was your early days like? Yeah, I you know it was. At the time, it was writing spec scripts as the which now everyone writes pilots. But at the time, you write a spec script, you you know pick whatever shows hot on the air, and you a Roseanne or became Friends or Frasier or whatever it is. Uh, Larry Sanders, I think when I was that was the first one I wrote. Um, and you write a sample script for it, and you just start churning those out, and and you know sending them out, trying to get an agent, trying to get a job on one of these shows, so you can maybe one of the producers will help introduce you to their agent. But it was, you know, it's a little bit, there's, you get kicked in the teeth every now and then, and you just have to move past it. Like, I remember one time on the first job I had, my, I was a, a PA uh, for about six months, and then I was able to, then we lost the writer's assistant, and I was able to talk my way into the writer's assistant job because I could type fast. But even as a writer's assistant, my desk was in the kitchen because um, there just wasn't room. So, so literally people would come in to get coffee or bananas or whatever and then my desk was literally in the middle of the kitchen um but i remember one time this woman we shared this space with a show called hang on mr cooper and i remember one of the producers because you know we were in the same building on and the warner brothers lot so we sort of knew these people um and i said uh there was a, a producer over there and i you can bleep out her name if you want but her name was paula roth <laughs> who seemed perfect perfectly nice um, but I knew I had been introduced to her, so I knew her. She was working on the other show, and she came. We had better food in our kitchen next to my desk, so a lot of times I hang with Mr. Cooper. Writers would come into our kitchen to get food. But uh, I remember her coming in, and I was trying to be pleasant, and I said, uh, "So, uh, how's life for Paula Roth these days?" And she grabbed a uh, banana and walked past me, and without looking back at me, says, "Well, it sucks, but it's better than yours." And then she kept walking. I'm like, oh, "Okay, well." <laughs> Welcome to Hollywood, I guess. So there was there's a lot of moments like that that happen that sort of remind you that, you know, it, it's not going to be an easy road. And trust me, I'm I'm well aware that there are a lot of people who had a much, much more difficult time than I did. Um, oh, wow. You know. Can, can you made your story made me think of like, can we back up a hair? Because we're actually going to the point where you're breaking in. But you you said you packed up your stuff and got into a car when you were a bartender in New Hampshire. Yeah. It looks like probably in the early 90s, I'm guessing. How yeah, did 92. you know? How did you know you could do this at all? 
Um, I, I didn't know. I, you know, when I was in college, I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know. I thought maybe I'd get into journalism or something like that. Um, and I was maybe a junior in college and I overheard, I was in upstate New York and not a school that had a lot of creative writing. And I, uh, I, I overheard a, a woman in one of my classes say to someone that she had just written a screenplay. And I had never heard of such a thing, that that was a job. And, and as soon as I heard that, I knew that, that I wanted to do something like that. And so I tried to do research and try to figure out what that even means. You know, how do you do it? And back then, pre-internet, it was hard to get information. If anyone, if you guys remember, like there were certain, there was some, uh, a couple of industry magazines that you could get. The premier, ma- there was a premier magazine back then that, that sometimes had ads in the back where you could buy like a, a cheers script or something like that, that had been photocopied like 600 times and you could barely read it. So I tried to buy these scripts and read them. And, but I, I knew what I wanted to do at that point. Um, I didn't know if I'd be any good at it, but I, you know, I, I tried writing things then and I was bartending in New Hampshire. And I remember the turning point was Cheers, which I loved, was celebrating the 200th or 250th episode or something like that in Boston. They were all at this place called the Bull and Finch, which is the bar that the, the Cheers bar was, was based on. And they were all there and they were celebrating this thing and all the actors were there and the writers and it was on TV 38 uh, in Boston. I was watching it at home and they were all hammered and George Wentz like pounding beers and, you know, giving people shit. But I remember then they showed the two guys who were running the show, um, Dan O'Shannon and Tom Anderson were the two showrunners at the time. And, and I saw them and I, at the time I was at 24 and I was like, I got time. I mean, how old are writers like in their fifties? Like, you know, whatever I could bartend for a while. And, and I saw that. And, and those two guys, uh, Dan and Tom, maybe they were 26. I don't know. They look 18, but they were probably 26, maybe 27. Um, and they were running cheers, which was the hottest show on TV at that point. So that's when I realized like, Oh, if these, these guys are like basically my age and they're running a show, like I'm already behind. And I remember giving my notice the next day and then packing up my car and moving out. So I, I didn't know, you know, I knew one guy who was friends of the family named Tom Devaney, who was working a show called Perfect Strangers. I didn't know him, but I wrote him, you know, dear Mr. Devaney, if I come out there, can I have lunch with you? You know, um, and I ended up becoming very good friends with him and then hiring him on Family Guy um, uh, years later. So. But yeah, you, I didn't know. I just knew I wanted to do it. And I gave myself five years. I figured, look, I'll go out there. If I have to live in my car and get a gym membership and shower in the gym, I'd do it for five years. And then after five years, I still couldn't get a job. Then I would come back. But it's hard to come back 3,000 miles away when you leave to conquer something. So amazing. Probably <laughs> I got lucky. I got lucky and got a job. So have you come across those showrunners at any point and told them a version of this story? I have. Um, uh, I have talked to uh, Tom Anderson about it. I don't think I've ever met Dan, but I did I did tell Tom that story. Um, he, he got a kick out of it. I did also. <laughs> that was one story. The other story was uh, there was a young writer who I think was 24, and this was before I had moved out, and, and he there was an article on him in, uh, I think, Vanity Fair or something, because um, he had just written uh, regarding Henry, and it was a, a big hit, and he was very young, and you know, of course, it's J.J. Abrams. Um, but I happened to run into him, and so I had I took that article about him and, and pasted it on my wall, like I'm going to do this someday, you know. Um, 
And I actually ran into J.J. Abrams at the SAG Awards years and years ago. But I told him that story and I, I talked to him about that. And I, I appreciate told him I appreciated him and um, that I had his article on the wall urging me to come to L.A. So so these are these things, you know, and you live in a small town in New Hampshire and it, it wasn't like it is now. There wasn't there, was, there wasn't an awareness of what the industry right now. You can go online and you can watch table reads and all this stuff like there was no information. So it was it really was entering this world that I had knew nothing about. But it was so intriguing to me because I loved TV growing up and I love movies. And I and I thought that, you know, if I'm going to do something, might as well do something I love. So I thought I'd come out and try it. Extraordinary. That's a brilliant story. Um, so on this show, I, I, I think I'm allowed to say this. I haven't watched everything that everyone makes. I don't watch as much TV as Noah does because it's his job, but probably not as much as your average person. But Family Guy is one of my favorite shows. And we had somebody else on uh, who was uh, on Family Guy. And I remember asking him lots of Family Guy questions and went away from our normal rejection, yeah. failure, and adversity. And I just sort of fanboyed a bit. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to try I'm going to try and make this a rejection, failure, and adversity story. Yeah. Now, you know, nobody should ever believe what they read on Wikipedia because it's a very unreliable source. But I don't, I assume you know this, but in your Wikipedia entry, it rather weirdly says, uh, he began writing for the animated television series Family Guy. Although initially skeptical, he accepted the job as he did not have other options. Now, okay, so, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I look, love that. I, T- tell us about what, what, I was a writer on, I was a, I had been a, an assistant for four years. I got bumped up. Yvette Bowser uh, had bumped me up on Living Single um, as a writer. So I was there for two years as a writer. But halfway through the second year, the show was canceled after, you know, five seasons, or whatever. So it was January of that year, Living Single, when I found myself out of work. Um, and so I, you know, was working on my samples, trying to get a job. And I, at the time, the the hot company to get into was Bright Kaufman Crane because they had friends and they Veronica's Closet had been on for for one year and was coming back for a second year. That was a huge hit. And they, I think they were coming out with Jesse that year, which was a spinoff. And they had a lot of things going. So I ended up having they liked my sample and I had a bunch of meetings with them. And then they had told my um, agency that they were going to put me on Veronica's Closet. So I was like, oh, this is great because, you know, for me at the time, what I you know, what you need is to get on a a show that's considered a hit show. And then that'll make your career. Like then you can, then you're, Oh, you're the guy that worked on the show. And so that you must be good, you know? So I was sort of following that path. And so I was really excited about the Veronica Plaza thing. And it was still sort of early in staffing season. And I, and so I was told I was going to be on that and I was naive enough to believe it. Um, and as soon as my agent at the time had heard this, I stopped going out on other auditions, uh, interviews. And so suddenly it was June. Um, I hadn't heard anything yet maybe middle of June, it was, you know, as it was back then, you know, staffing season is, you know, March, April, May, and all the shows start at the beginning of June. That's how it was. It was very, you know, set schedule. So I got a, a call in the middle of June as I was waiting to start in Veronica's closet from a friend of mine who was a writer's assistant. And she had gotten a job in, on Veronica's closet, as it turns out. And she said, I thought you were working on Veronica's closet. And I said, oh, I am. And she said, oh, because I'm the writer's assistant. We started a week ago. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So I called my agent and I said, uh, I just got a call from someone at Veronica's closet and said they started the writer's room a week ago. What's uh, going on? He's like, huh, uh, I'll call you back. And he got off the phone and uh, called back and said, 
Yeah, it's not going to work out there. Um, I guess they had to hire someone. They had, to, I think it was Amy Sherman actually to run the show. And there's just no money left, so they can't hire you. I'm like, what? What What do you, you said I had the job. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. I'm like, so, and I looked at the last month where I then had no interviews. Like maybe you should have kept putting me out for, for interviews during that time. So then I was out of work and this is June and everything's staffed. So I'm like beside myself. So then I get a call about 10 minutes later. They're scrambling now because they realized they messed up. And they said, okay, look, there's one job left hiring. Um, one of our clients is on it. I said, okay, okay, here's something, here's something. He said, it's a, it's a cartoon. Um, I said, my, my fucking career is over at this point. I'm going to cartoon. <laughs> and it's called Family Guy. It's like The Simpsons. It's got this young you know, writer who's doing it. And I'm like, a cartoon? And all I could think, and I'm like, they said, well, look, we can get you an interview. And I'm like, okay, there's nothing else. And they're like, no, I'm like, okay, get me the interview. And I hung up and I'm like, that's it. That's it. My career is over. And I go in, I get the interview. I go in. And it's one of those things where you just don't care. It's like, you're not nervous at all. It's like, I don't know what this is. I was so upset that I wasn't on Bronx's closet that I, you go in and you watch the VHS tape. And at the time it was like a three or five minute presentation that Seth had done like on his kitchen table over the last six months he just drew all the like 8,000 frames of of uh of comic art basically that he then made into a, a presentation himself uh did all the voices himself I didn't know what it was I'm like I don't get this I don't understand and I was angry anyway because I was supposed to be over in the closet so I was like yeah whatever yeah I'm from oh you're from Connecticut yeah my parent, you know whatever yeah I'm from New Hampshire on an east coast thing and yeah, I know all these people. They're, you know, I was like, yeah, hire me or not. I didn't say that, but that was my attitude. I was like, whatever. I was so frustrated. And of course, I got the job. And I just can't. I, I look back at that and and I remember getting the job and not and being like, whatever. Like I could have been on Veronica's Closet. Now I have to do this show, Family Guy. And of course, I went in and the very first day, loved every second of it, loved the show, loved everyone who worked on the show. This is 1998 at this point. Um, there was 10 of us, I think. And I absolutely loved it. And it's it's been something that rings in my head ever since, which is you just never know. Veronica's Closet, that thing that was a huge hit, went one more season, was canceled. And I worked on Family Guy for the next 22 years. So you just never, you just never know. And so I... I try to tell people now, like you, you think, you know, what the best move is for you, but you, you never know how it's going to go. Just pick the thing that you like creatively, which I actually thought I was doing. And I didn't realize how much I loved it until I got there, but you have choices in your career a lot to pick two different things. And one is like the, the guaranteed business hit. Like this is definitely all these people involved. This is definitely going to go five years, six years. And the other choice is like, I don't know what this is. I love it creatively, but it's never going to go. Just pick the one that creatively you like, because you just never know either way. You might as well work on something that you love. So anyway, that was that was very that was a, a good moment for me and a very lucky moment that I ended up on Amazing. that show. I was Amazing. there until last year. 84 episodes into this podcast. I think that's my favorite story. Um, <laughs> that's extraordinary. Uh, so I guess two takeaways from that. Number one is this goes to your point earlier on about the rejection letter issue and the fact that you don't have your Veronica's closet of rejection letter because no one bothered <laughs> yeah. to tell you um, yeah. or try and find your alternative employment, which seems uh, ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. Um, presumably, uh, you have told at some point in the 22 years on Family Guy, you told 
Seth, that when yeah, so you I were being interviewed, yeah. absolutely, I told him, and, and I, I, you know, a lot of the writers who look back at that time when they when they got their job on Family Guy remember we wa- I watched this thing and I loved it from the start, and I I didn't love it from the start. I didn't quite wasn't quite sure what it was. I was never a Simpsons watcher. A lot of people on the show were, um, and I just wasn't. It just wasn't something. I don't know. I just was never really at that time even. Not that I didn't like the symptoms, I just didn't watch it. So yeah, I am the one that was just wasn't quite sure what the show was when we started. But like I said, immediately fell in love with it, was laughing all day long. Um, and we were on it, you know, then you're suddenly on a show. I was like, okay, well, maybe this is the hit show I'm gonna be on, and you're on for two years and it gets canceled. Um, and then I went off and, and went to work on Titus and uh then was in a room with with uh, a bunch of great writers there but had to stay there uh, when I heard that Family Guy got picked up a second time uh, uh, because I think Gail Berman became the head of Fox and her kids liked it. So then she picked it up for another 13 episodes and I couldn't go back for like what was season three, but then still no one was watching it. So they canceled it a second time. And then I went over to Yes Dear after Titus was canceled and I was on Yes Dear for two years. And when I got a call from Seth saying, you're not gonna believe this, but they're bringing it back. And that was 2004. So, so yeah, went back to it in 2004, then was there, uh, ran it for with Seth and David Goodman for, I don't know, five years, six years, but then went down to part-time. And then I was part-time from probably 2010 to last year where I just couldn't do both resident alien and that at the same time. So yeah, it's, it's incredibly lucky. I mean, you never, it's incredibly lucky. You, you, you never in this business have any kind of job security and you're on this animated show that you know is just going to be on for a long time because that's what happens with the Simpsons and you know the the characters don't age themselves out of you know out into a to to turn into a different show. Um, it just is what it is, and I think they've done. I think they're celebrating actually in a week. I think they're doing the the 400th episode celebration for Family Guy. Twenty two years is extraordinary for starters, and this and the story of Family Guy coming and going was sort of an unparalleled. Now with Netflix and streaming, shows do come back every now and then, yeah. but Family Guy story was just crazy even for its time. So let's let's go fast forward all the way through Family Guy. Uh, you know, we had some. We, we both love Family Guy. David Goodman was obviously on this podcast. Oh, I love really David. Yeah, share, share some stories with us. But let's go to Resident. I want to hear about some of Resident Alien. So you you create this show. Um, you go back to live action. You're like 22 years of of cartoons, yeah. right? Not cartoons, animated TV. I'm done with that. I'm gonna I'm gonna create a show with a with real human beings again. Was there fears that you maybe forgot how to to do that, or are they similar enough that it was just like it, you know you know I'm gonna yeah. die and it's gonna be okay? There wasn't fears because I had never really stopped doing it because I before Resident Alien I had several many several failed pilot attempts so even though i was on family guy i was still writing pilots i was able to shoot a couple of them i wrote many more that i wasn't that wasn't were not picked up um but i but they were all live action i had opportunities to do uh, spin-off stuff from family guy or, or other animated shows and i just it wasn't where my head's at i loved animation i loved doing it at family guy but i always wanted to get back into the live action world so all my pilots i had written were live action pilots and um they were all comedies uh and i was able to shoot a couple like i said but there was several more that i wrote that that i didn't shoot and so i never really stopped writing live action comedy 
what start what did start happening was I I realized I was no longer watching comedy. What I was watching were those were those cable dramas, the Breaking Bads and the Friday Night Lights and um, you know the Wire and the Shield and all these things. And I really dug watching those. And so that's when I really started thinking like, well, maybe I you know I'm, this is all I'm watching. Maybe I want to shift gears and and try to write a you know an hour long dramatic show. So I took two years to write a uh, uh, hour-long dramatic pilot, um, and I went out with it with Amblin. We were finished, and we were not able to sell it, but it opened up some worlds in the some some doors in the hour world for me. Because even though I'd done comedy for so long, if you want to shift over to drama, it's like you, it's almost like you're starting again because they can't they don't really trust that you can do it. So that opened up some doors, and then in 2015, Amblin came to me with this comic book called Resident Alien and asked if I would be interested in adapting that. And my first take on it was not that comedic. I had wanted to do something a little straighter and a little more dramatic. Uh, I was able to sell it to USA at the time and they shifted it over to sci-fi. But it was only in the in the in the writing of the script, which I think I rewrote that thing for the studio 25 times over a year and a half. Um, it was in that process that it became much more comedic. Because I, I was writing it and I think they liked it, but they kept giving notes like don't be afraid to put some humor in here and don't be afraid to make this character funnier. And after getting that note, after 10 drafts, I'm like, oh, I suddenly, oh, they want this to be, oh, I see what's happening. Oh, I know why I'm doing this. Like, <laughs> I see what's happening here. So then I tried to find that blend of of dramatic uh, uh, storytelling and comedy um, and sort of found the groove in that, which is what the show ended up becoming. But it was not my intent going into it that, that would even be a comedy, but ended up working out did you find the world had changed when you got back out and had a room of your own meaning you you started in the 90s very you know one type of comedy writer's room now then you go into a room for 20 i mean off and on for 22 years yeah you're with the same not the same i'm probably probably not exactly the same people but a lot of the same people sure. same style same boss and then now it's your room and i feel like the landscape has changed dramatically since you started and even since I started, how do you adjust to that? I mean, it was completely different. I mean, it was different in a good way and, and different in the way I wanted it to be. And I had the luxury of being able to hire my own staff. So I look back to when I was a writer's assistant in the early nineties and half my job was making cocktails for the white male producers that were, that were basically the main uh, writing staff on these shows. Like, I would stay late with them because I could take notes, but also I was a bartender, so I knew how to make martinis. And they would sit in the showrunner's office and just drink martinis and rewrite these scripts. So it was much more of an old boys, uh, good old boys society sense, sort of frat boy thing in these writers' rooms. And when I put together my own room, I really wanted to make it very diverse and um, and and went out to find you know find great writers with different point of views and. You know, when I was staffing, I made a point to to take the covers off all the scripts um, and read them just numbered. So I didn't know any of the names or anything and put them in different piles based on whether I like the script or not. And um, and then went out of my way to really, yeah, to really try to put together a room that felt very diverse. And it, it was a different it's a much different time now than it was 30 years ago. There's much more awareness in a great way of 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 what these rooms should be and and how that can help the storytelling and. Um, I, I was, you know, the, all the rooms I've been in, in their own way have been great. And I've learned so much from everyone, but I, I really love, I love the ability to pick your own, your writers. I mean, it's really like, 
it's kind of like casting, you know, same, same as like casting a show with actors. You're, you're really, as you know, like it's like, it's cast, it's basically casting writers into this role of writer on your show. It's getting the right dynamics. It's getting good people. It's getting different strengths. You know um, it's worked out pretty well. I think the rooms we've had have been great. So, yeah, I guess a combination of you remembering that person being mean to you when you were in your <laughs> office kitchen, the fact that, as you said, you remember making the payphone phone calls, yeah. and the fact that I think I'm allowed to say this, you do genuinely seem like a nice guy in a in the traditional sense of what yeah. a nice guy is like. Do you run your room, therefore, as a sort of humble person who knows their beginnings, who's grateful to be in this industry, rather than? Yeah the the martini version of it well if i was the martini version of it i would never admit it uh this is no true. i am look there's two ways it can go there's the there and in life as well there's the there's the people who get shit on and they say well now i can shit on other people or there's people who get treated that way and and spend their career realizing you're know, paying attention and saying there's, there's a better way to do this and i spent a lot of my career working for showrunners and some were great and some were sort of tyrants you know and uh and I, I feel like you 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 take the lessons from that and you 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 just you try to create an atmosphere, especially in comedy, an atmosphere that is that is friendly and supportive and fun. And I think the I think the lighter people feel in the room, the the, the more open they're gonna be about their life, the more open they're gonna be about you know, feeling safe, trying something that's crazy, that maybe, you know, they're not gonna get, you know, given shit for it if it doesn't work. It's like I encourage the writers to say, you know think out of the box, like what's a crazy thing. And they're not going to be ridiculed if it doesn't, you know, we all fall flat in our face at some points and they're not going to be ridiculed for it, but I want to hear their ideas, especially since we're doing a show with, you know, with an alien who, you know, goes around, you know, at times like scooting his ass along the carpet, like a dog and, you know, humps vending machines to get chips out. So, you know, there's, there's big ideas out there and I definitely encourage the, uh, the staff to pitch them and, and try to create an open, sort of welcoming atmosphere that they can do so. And also, you know, trying to respect the fact that they're adults and treat them like adults. And I've been on a lot of staffs where, you know, you have to have a doctor's appointment, but, you know, the only time you can do it is at like 10, but because they shifted it, but the showrunner won't let you leave at 10, except the same showrunner is driving to Ojai at noon on a Friday, you know, for a vacation, a golf vacation. So I always feel like with the staff, of course, try to make your appointments outside of the room time. If you can't, you can't and come in when you can, you know, um, if you have a, if your kid has a birthday, go spend the day with your kid. You know, that is more important. And, and typically that writer will then will come back feeling more, more uh, energized, more excited. And in, and in several cases have spent extra time then coming up with story areas or something to try to make up for it. So I, I feel like you get more out of people when you treat them like adults like that. A hundred percent. The we talk a lot on this show about how difficult it is running a show in terms of just it, yeah. the number of jobs you have to do and all that sort of stuff. Um, obviously, you've spent a long time in the industry reaching the point that you're now doing it. What would you say are your strengths in that role? And what would you say remain your weaknesses? Yeah, I think the strength probably is that I don't ever get stressed about anything that happens on the show. Um I think you can care deeply about something without worrying about it. I think that comes from the fact that I've lived outside of LA for 12 years and I live in Connecticut. Um, and I think when you're outside the bubble of LA, 
you you are no longer used to just your identity doesn't just become wrapped up in whatever show you're in and like i if it all went away i could be happy just writing plays or something and working at a pizza place and i couldn't say that about myself 10 years ago when i was living in la full time um but i do feel that way now like i i feel like be knowing that it knowing the importance of it and weighing how and i love it like i love doing it i love the creativity i love putting the show on the air and all that stuff but if it you know you do the best you can and if it doesn't work out or the show gets canceled it doesn't mean that i'm no good it doesn't mean that you know i'm a bad writer it's just that you know these are the way things go and you work as hard as you can to make it as great as you can and you have to let go of what you don't have power over so not feeling stressed about any of it has been incredibly helpful because i don't have to make any decisions based on fear i don't have to you know scramble and whip off a script really fast just to get it in you know, I take the time with it until it's good. And if, if it's not done in time, what are you going to do? It's not done in time. <laughs> We'd have to, and we haven't had that problem. I've gotten it done, but it's always hanging over your head. Like maybe you won't figure it out this time. And instead of letting that eat me up inside, I just sort of like shrug it off. Like, well, I think I will, but we'll see. <laughs> I hope so. You know, and so far it's worked out, but someday it may not. And then you know, you deal with it. So that's been very helpful. I think what I could do better at, I think I could um, delegate a little bit more. I do find myself hands in everything. Um, in that it's, it's so much work anyway. Uh, and you, cause you are, your hands are in everything anyway, but I, yeah, I have a hard time letting go of stuff. I want to make sure everything is absolutely perfect. Um, and sometimes just for health reasons you know that to get a little bit more sleep it probably would be good to be able to let go of it and say okay this can be 90 percent, and i'll just sleep a couple extra hours tonight but that's that's hard for me to do but i'm working on it the, i'm the sure there's other things but that's the first thing that came to my mind the more, the more people we have on this show uh the more the conversation comes up that show running probably should be a two-person job at least because of the amount of, of work that people have 100 percent. i mean it's it's really insane. I mean, it's insane what you're expected to do. And it's, by the way, it's great. Like, it's great that you have the final say in everything, but now you have the final say in everything and everything is, is a lot, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the, the, the drapes in the, in the cabin, it's what background actors are wearing. It's the scripts, it's post, it's, you know, it's hiring directors. It's everything. I mean, it's, it's a lot. I don't actually know people who do take on the stress of it, I don't know how their hearts just don't explode because I think if I, you get really tired, but if I had to add a level of like, oh my God, if this doesn't work out, I'm a failure and everything. If I added that to it, I I think I would just kill myself. I'm I, I'm reading um, David Milch's autobiography and he's talking about, yeah, I was like 48. I had a heart attack while talking to the actor and then I had another heart attack and then I had another heart attack. And I'm like, so your comment about it is, it does happen to people. It does. It's brutal. Uh -huh. um, it's hard. Un unfortunately, I, I think Dan and I both would talk to you forever. And maybe at some point we should switch the format of this podcast to two to three hours because sometimes we're <laughs> like getting into it with people. But this does, you know, our time is up for this one. And that does bring us to our very last question, which is we ask everybody that comes on this podcast, if you could give one piece of advice to an aspiring writer, mm -hmm. what would it be? That's an easy one for me because you you hear it's become cliche almost like the write what you know thing. You get some people giving you bad advice. You get some people saying like, well, this is what the industry is looking for right now. So write a buddy comedy or write. I ignore all of that. 
write your story, write something that you care about, write something that you're, that you get excited to sit down and work on. Um, and I know it's a little bit trite, but it, there's so much truth to it because you can't, but if you're writing the buddy comedy, by the time you finish, it's, it's now like, you know, they're looking for mother comedies or, you know, you, you don't know what it changes so often and there's no guarantee they're going to make it anyway. All you have control over is the is the time you spend writing and what you're going to be writing. So you better spend time writing something that you love because it's a lot of work and it's hard even when you're loving what you're doing. Um, and also just pour yourself into it and don't worry about if if it's if it doesn't look like everything else, if it's if it hasn't been done before, if it feels different and it feels specific to you and it's your point of view and it's your voice, chances are it's going to be a lot more exciting for someone to read than something that feels like everything else. I think the most exciting things TV and film uh, wise that have come out in the past 20 years are things that people write outside the box, you know, and I think the reason that Resident Alien has a different feel to it is because it was the first time when I was writing something where I just stopped caring about trying to make it like something that people would buy. I never expected it would end up on the air. I never expected it to go forward. I was writing it for myself and it's this weird mix of comedy and drama and there's sci-fi and there's like thriller stuff in it sometimes and there's heartfelt moments and there's an alien fucking humping things and riding a horse. Like there's so many weird different things about it, but I did it because it was making me laugh and I'm like, this is what I would watch, but no one's ever going to see it, but at least I'm going to spend a year doing this. And, but I think it's the thing that made it feel a little bit different. So just, I think, write what you would want to watch and write something that is fun to write because it's a lot of work and you owe it to yourself to at least have fun doing it. Amazing. So look, uh, from the Roseanne rejection letters to the <laughs> Veronica's closet rejection letter that was never sent to the Family Guy story to the payphone calls to aliens humping vending machines. Chris Sheridan, this has been an amazing interview. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for taking your time. And by the way, I have two similar rejections from Whit Thomas as well. Same time, they just sent, they, they rejected me twice for no reason. So these things happen. <laughs> I, I do want to say before we close, I've seen Dan hump vending machines. I always thought it was a British thing, but now I'm realizing it's an alien thing. So I got to <laughs> it's it an alien thing. All right, noted. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you, you very much. Good out, Dan, for that effort. <laughs> Cheers, Chris. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. that's a wrap on this episode of screaming into the hollywood abyss as always is this episode was brought to you by scriptation the screen writing and annotation software that at the very least has made my life easier and will make your life easier as well uh we'd like to thank our wives who put up with us recording these episodes in our offices and basements and closets and bathrooms and anywhere we can get a little space to record an interview and of course we want to thank james launch who provided us with the great intro and outro music uh, if you want to find us on social media you can find noah at n evslin on twitter tweeting a variety of writer-based nonsense and uh, some terrible puns and occasionally begging for sponsorship uh, if you want more refined tweets mostly about football and whiskey you can find me at dan rutstein if you're interested in buying a copy of scriptation if you go to www.scriptation.com backslash sitha s-i-t-h-a 
you will receive a special discount. Thank you very much for listening. As always, we appreciate you. Uh, Please give us any feedback, mostly positive stuff about me, and we will see you next week. And if you do say a negative thing about Dan, there is a chance I might buy you a free copy of Scriptation.